Hey everybody, this is Kim from the People Are Wild podcast. Obviously, right? You're listening to this. But today is going to be a little bit extra special in honor of the great day that is April Fool's Day, April 1st. There's a bit of a switcheroo, if you will, going on between few podcasts, including this one right here. So I am not actually going to be giving you a new episode. My friend Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast is going to be filling you in on a very important topic that is very relevant to, well, a lot of people out there. So I hope you enjoy it. And thank you again to Kate for essentially substituting in today. This podcast involves themes such as violence, sex, and mental illness. If these topics are likely to disturb you or those around you, please reconsider. The privacy and confidentiality of everyone discussed here have been carefully protected, with details changed whenever possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis centre or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You matter. Hey, this is Kate. When I started this podcast, I really believed it was going to be me alone in my basement, talking to my old washing machine about stuff I found interesting that maybe a couple of very patient friends or obligated family members would listen, and otherwise, that was about it. Instead, I've had a really good response, primarily in terms of other people willing to talk to me. It takes courage every time, and they have their own set of expertise every time, and I have found it fascinating. So I've rolled with it. And there are times where I feel like this has become more of an interview show. And I'm okay with that. But every once in a while, there are things that I want to say to sort of clear up my thoughts on it, to elaborate on how I feel or think about a given topic. And this is one of those. So I'm a little nervous because I haven't flown solo since episode three. And this is episode 37 but I think we can handle it, right? I want to talk today specifically about the concepts of anxiety and ADHD. I did talk about anxiety once before on episode 16, according to my phone. And that went amazing because so many other people sort of opened their brains to me and shared their personal stories and experiences. This time, I want to go a little more clinical, a little more removed from what it actually feels like into how I think about the process of diagnosis and treatment. So if you want to hear a little bit more of an emotional, evocative experience from many of my friends, go back to that one. But you might want to go to that one after this, just to really hear how their experiences slide right in to the general, both official thought process and my own personal thought process about it. Whatever, you do you. I also want to talk about ADHD because I feel like there's this tremendous overlap between the two concepts that doesn't get talked about very often. So that's what's about to happen. I hope to normalize both anxiety and ADHD. I hope to make them more understandable, 
because it always baffles me how sort of don't pay any attention to the man behind the curtain, both medical things and psychological things tend to get. Now, I can't help you with the medical stuff. I am sort of willfully clueless about a lot of that. But I'm going to do my best to make these two specific topics today seem a little more understandable, accessible, grokkable, if you're a real nerd. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss. start with anxiety and specifically the official definitions of it. There are times where you kind of know you're with somebody who's anxious and you don't have to have a degree in any damn thing to recognize, shit, that person's revved up. But I want to take it a step back to the ways that I had to formally back up any assessment and diagnosis that I ever came up with. You can't just splash it around and you have to take some time to compare it to other potential diagnoses before you tape something on somebody's forehead saying, this is what you got. And later on in the episode, you'll get a sense of why it matters so much. To me, diagnosis is at least as important as having a good treatment clinician. And I really hope you got good treatment clinicians because I was never good at that, but I consider myself a good diagnostician. So we'll start in a very cerebral approach with part of the official diagnostic and statistical manual definition. Now I'm not going to read from it. I have it and I used it heavily, but I think you're smart enough that you can go find it if you want it. I'm going to try and present this as I want to say normally, but you know what I mean, as possible. They talk about generalized anxiety disorder, but there are also specific anxieties. And we're going to hit both of them right now because it uses the same damn word. They talk about the presence of excessive worry. Let me stop myself right there. What's excessive? How do you know what's too much and what's not enough? Anyway, we'll come back to that. Excessive worry about things like separation, the presence of strangers or specific people, group situations, or a variety of other specific topics or events or activities. Or you can look at anxiety, a totally, to my mind, different breed. Like you're talking short-haired cats versus long-haired cats. They're all miserable. Okay, I like cats. Um, you're talking about yippy dogs versus St. Bernard's. They're all miserable, difficult. Okay, I'm kidding. You get the point. Same species, different breeds. So another breed of anxiety is what's called generalized anxiety disorder. And that's 
not as specific. It's about a whole bunch of different things and sometimes nothing at all. It's grinding and I used to refer to it as like an Eeyore cloud from Winnie the Pooh. There's this dark and heavy impending yuck that can follow you around even on a really nice day. All of them are under the umbrella of anxiety, but I feel like they're different critters. Symptoms, though, do share a lot of similarities, and I think that's primarily why they are grouped together as the same species. You have to have a sense of worry, which is not the same as fear. Okay, fear is a more physiological deal. It's, eh, don't like it. It, it fits in the same bucket with disgust or unreasonable joy. You know, these kind of, they're not even emotions, they're just feelings. They're things that happen to you on a visceral level. And it's usually about a specific observable, hey, look, there it is. I don't like it, or I really do like it. And this is bang, how I feel about it. Startle reflexes, fear, they all kind of go together like that. Anxiety needs not so much fear, but worry. It's a conscious thing. It's in your head and you know it's there. And usually you even know, like, this is not helping. Why am I worrying about this? It's just, but it's a, a, a thought process, a concern about what is happening right now or what is about to happen. But in a way that is sort of not necessarily proportionate to what's going on, or you look at the people around you and they're not having it. So you're up in your head more. It's not rational because you're aware that there are other ways to look at the situation. And I can come up with a logical reason why I feel this way, but I can see that there's a logical reason why other people don't. And so it's, it's just not... It's not proportionate to the world around you. And at some point soon, I'm going to come back to that concept of what is rational versus not. So just sort of table that for an episode or two down the line. But now you may want to, I don't know, write these down or I'll put them up in the show notes so that you can take a peek. But you need at least three of the following things. And I do have them written down now because it's been so long since I worked, but I used to kind of be able to rattle them off because I did this a lot. Everybody and their grandmother has anxiety at some point in their lives. And if you tell me you don't, you're a goddamn liar. But so you got to have three of these things. Restlessness or edginess. And I don't mean emo edginess, right, kids? Okay. Fatigue impaired concentration so you either have scattered thoughts or your mind just goes blank irritability muscle aches crappy sleep technical term i know but i mean either insomnia or you do sleep but you don't feel rested when you wake up or you are distracted by a lot of dreams and intrusive thoughts so your sleep might be broken those sorts of things 
Sometimes you also have disproportionate sweating or you have GI symptoms from nausea to diarrhea to just blech, whatever. Pick three, any three. It's like a luck game, maybe, but you got to have enough of those that it's sort of obviously a a routine and regular thing. Either it happens in moments on a frequent basis, or it just happens all the damn time. It has to interfere with your daily life, not be due to drugs, not be due to another disorder. So that's all the shit that I have to juggle in my head. And then I need to know all these diagnostic criteria. I have to administer some form of standardized assessment. That doesn't necessarily mean formal tests, although often insurance companies and courts want to see those. But some form of standardized way of measuring anxiety. And then I have to use my clinical judgment. And all of that has to go together to decide, are you anxious? Are you just a worry war? There's a difference. Is it situational anxiety? Is it a specific anxiety? Is it a phobia? Is it a panic disorder? Is it a trauma-related PTSD situation? Is it generalized anxiety disorder? There's a lot of options here. We all, every one of us, every one of you, and I'm looking at you too, we suck at self-diagnosis. I suck at self-diagnosis. Let me give you a little example of this. I ran a clinic on an outpatient basis at one point in New Hampshire. I also worked heavily with trauma survivors in both the prison and the hospital. And guess who shows up in the ER with psych symptoms? People who are anxious. So I worked with it a lot. I also experienced PTSD due to a trauma that I experienced when I was 12 and worked through, really, okay, I didn't work through it. I fucking ignored it and acted out through my teenage years. But in my early 20s, I sort of worked through it and kind of reached an even keel. I guess you could call it remission for many years. And then I had the shit hit my fan in 2010. So I'm 32 years old. I have major medical problems immediately after the birth of a child. I'm in the hospital for six weeks. Then I'm housebound for another nine months after that. And just uh, bad stuff. And I was having trouble remembering things. I was having trouble focusing my thoughts. I... I had a hard time being out in public around people. I really struggled being in any sort of medical situation. Uh, My GI tract was seven different flavors of... Okay, not a good word. My GI tract was seven different kinds of messed up. Just a lot going on. And I thought that I was experiencing like a memory issue. Early onset dementia or some sort of post-coma thing, because doctors like to tell you that. If you've ever been in a coma for the rest of your life, if you have any kind of neurological problem, they go, oh, that's post-coma syndrome, which means, I don't know. Anyway, I was just, I didn't know what was going on, but I knew it was wrong. And so I went to see a neurologist who had known me from beforehand. 
And he sits and listens to me and asks whatever questions he asks and whatever. And he looks at me when we're done and he says, I think you have PTSD. And in the moment I was like, I don't have PTSD. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, no, I'm here because I'm losing my mind. You know, it's not. And he, his office is about an hour from where I live. And so the whole drive home, I'm like, what are you talking about? And I probably was pulling into my driveway before I stopped ignoring his words and started thinking about them and realized, holy shit, I have PTSD. I recognize these symptoms. I understand what's going on. Motherfucker. How did I not see that myself? Well, because we can't. When you're too close to the situation, you can't see the situation. You got no perspective. So all of us suck at self-diagnosis. This is heavy and crappy stuff to hear, right? Excessive anxiety. That sounds pretty negative. The idea that it you have difficulty distinguishing between things, that it's not rational, that you have impairments in concentration, or, you know, your muscles ache, and you have crappy sleep, and your GI tract is messed up, and it interferes with your daily life. I mean, that's a lot of negativity sprinkled through this diagnosis, right? I mean, shit. I don't think of it as quite so negative. I mean, it's no party. Let's be clear. It's, it's not fun. But first of all, the way I think of anxiety, when I think of the thoughts that you have, the worries that you have, is kind of like a rat running a maze through your brain. And it always starts in the same place and it runs a certain path and always ends at the same place. And there's a logic to it, like A to B to C to D. Like it always goes in that same path every time and it ends up in the same place. And the place it ends up is, and I'm going to die. And when I say that, I'm not joking. I'm not mocking anybody or minimizing anything. I'm not speaking in hyperbole. I mean, in some level, your brain thinks this is going to happen and then that's going to happen and then this is going to happen and I'm going to die. And that's pretty unpleasant if you think about it. So anxiety is all of these symptoms and avoidances to try to alter that path through your brain. You're thinking in your own personal logic, and that's why you keep going A to B to C to D. Like, that's the logic of your brain. That's who you are. And changing that all by yourself is, if not impossible, it's at least fucking ridiculous. And ending up in, and I'm going to die, like, that's exhausting. Of course you're tired. Of course your muscles ache. But then you lay down to rest. And now you have the energy to go through that same goddamn maze again. There's a desperation to this. There's a survivalist, not in the Idaho sense. Sorry, guys, my friends in Idaho. Okay, I have one friend in Idaho, maybe a couple more. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not mocking you. I'm mocking your neighbors, okay? But there's, there is, there's this feeling of I'm all alone dealing with this. Nobody else seems to notice this. And it's this, this heavy weight on me all the time whether it's about a concern of a specific thing arising or whether it's a case of everything is dangerous. And that's why I think they lump them together. I think the treatment for the two types of anxiety is different. That specific, either situational or like phobia type anxiety responds pretty well to therapy, 
to recognizing the body physical symptoms that you're having and the thoughts that you're having and learning some techniques of you know breathing and visualization they do help no matter how earthy crunchy they sound that it is a thing and it's useful and you recognize your triggers you learn ways of overcoming that which usually brings on anxiety and you can pull yourself away from the ledge generalized anxiety uh, eventually therapy will work but i kind of think that you gotta enter that particular arena with some meds on your side to help you overcome the fact that you never get a break you're never approaching this from a not scared way like you're scared all the time you're worried all the time and i don't mean fear scared by the way i'm coming back to that like I don't, I don't, I don't know, I don't know what I'm scared of, but fuck, it's terrifying in a mental sense, not so, you know, physical is there, but it leads with the brain. The brain's trying to figure out what is going on with the body. So there, this is a coping mechanism. All of it is, is your, basically the way I see both types of anxiety is that your body gets revved up for specific reasons or reasons unknown. Your heart rate revs, you get a clutch in the pit of your stomach, you feel nauseous, your muscles tense up, your breathing increases, which makes your heart rate rev faster, which makes your stomach clench faster, which makes your breathing go faster, which makes your heart rate rev up, which makes, okay, you get the point. And your brain recognizes this shit's going on in your body when it was just watching a show a minute ago or it was just thinking about ice cream like what the fuck man and now your brain is trying to do like okay my body's freaking out something in my immediate environment must be dangerous because why else would my body be doing this the brain likes to assign a logic to everything we do it likes to think there's a reason behind things because otherwise what the hell the brain sticking around for right so it looks around and it finds danger. It finds reasons to be worried, either immediate danger or impending. And so the brain revs itself up secondary to the body. That's a coping, it's a way of coping with the body's reaction. But maybe if we can slow the body down first, the brain can go, oh, Okay, heart rate's down lower. No longer reacting as though you're being shocked by a cattle prod just because someone brushes by you. Maybe the source of danger has gone down. It's okay. It's going to be okay. I'm not going to die right this second. Okay. All right. And this is why breathing techniques help. It's why yoga helps. It's why removing yourself from the situation or visualizing yourself in a blank room or taking a couple of deep breaths. It's why it helps. It's why Ativan helps. Man, God bless Ativan for some of the procedures I had to go through. I'm not sure I could have entered the room without some form of chemical depressant on hand. Makes sense. I mean, it makes sense to me, right? And the problem with chemical depressants is that your body attenuates to them very quickly. So 
They'll start you off on maybe a quarter milligram, maybe a half a milligram of Ativan, and you're hanging in there. Like, it, it works pretty well, which means something from the range of it takes the edge off, which is a phrase I hate, except it works. It, it applies. Like, people use it all the time. Oh, that'll take the edge off. This'll take the edge off. This'll... But that's what I mean. Like, the, the, when you're when you're feeling anxious, whether it's a specific anxiety or general, the world feels pointy and sharp and hurtful and dangerous. And if Ativan can help you assess the world in a slightly more rounded, comfortable way, that takes the edge off, right? That's what I'm saying. And the range might go down to you're drooling on the couch, like God bless Ativan <laughs> in, you know, in different ways. But the problem is that if you start off at half a milligram, your body does attenuate to it after time. And sometimes if your body is just motherfucking insistent on, I'm going to have a meltdown and you can't stop me, then it can start to attenuate. It can overcome the Ativan so that now you need a full milligram to take that edge off in the same way and now you need one and a half milligrams and I don't recall what the maximum dosage is but it's not very high you don't go above a couple of milligrams before the doctors are like yeah no that doesn't help you anymore like the difference between I think it's like two and three or something like that like somewhere in there they're like there's no more difference like physiologically taking two milligrams is not more effective than taking three or don't quote me on the numbers, but there's not a high ceiling for it. And so that's why what the, you know, the general accepted practice is that if you got to start with meds, that's only to be used along with therapies that help you bigger picture, bring your anxiety down in other ways. There are medications that are not taken as needed, but instead Long-term, certain antidepressants go well with anxiety. Um, there are anxiety meds that are not habit-forming and, and that you don't tend to attenuate to. So, that's there. But as a rule, they want you to see a doctor and a therapist working together to figure this shit out before it melts your brain. Okay? Any questions? No? shit, I haven't lectured in a really long time. Okay, so that's what I got for how to think about anxiety. Shelf some of this and we'll come back to it. Man, this is hard work. This is why I usually do conversations because they're a lot easier, let me tell you. Just in terms of keeping track of what I've said and what I haven't, and when it's a conversation, it doesn't matter. We can just go anywhere. But fine, this is why I actually took notes, very grown up. But shout out to the podcasters who do scripted work. I don't know how you do it. I, I couldn't do it week in and week out. Okay, topic number two is ADHD, Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. I'm going to start off on this one by bitching about the name because the name kind of gets my panties in a twist. First of all, it says attention, and I don't like that because it has a lot more to it than your conscious attention. But, all right, fine. The next letter is the one I really don't like. Deficit. I don't 
like the fucking negativity in psychology. I don't like it. But still, how do you attention deficit? I don't think that's accurate. And we'll come back to why, but <clears throat> hyperactivity, not always present in someone with ADHD. Trust me. And then the disorder, I'll let you go, but let's refer back to that whole, I don't like the negativity everywhere you turn in psychology. Okay. Again, let me start with the sort of cerebral formal process of diagnosis from the psychologist office point of view. In order to call it ADHD, you need to have problems paying attention problems controlling impulses, and hyperactivity. Very much in the way that anxiety has different appearances, but they're all basically the same breed. So think sparrows and murder birds on this one. ADHD has inattentive presentation, hyperactive slash impulsive, or combined the process of diagnosis looks for a pile of symptoms. It used to be a very specific, like five out of the following eight or whatever, but now it's a little more recognizing that they're not a separate, like these are the ones that are only seen in inattentive and these are the ones that are only seen in hyperactive. And it's more like, let's go through the checklist and check off what's present and then we'll see where more check, check marks lay. And if most of yours are in one area, we're going to call that inattentive. If most of yours are in another area, we're going to call that hyperactive. If they're scattered all over, we'll call it combined. And if they just don't seem right, we're going to do a little more prodding because we think maybe one of your parents wants the Adderall. So I'm going to go down a whole list, and I know this is a long list. I'm not remotely hoping that anybody memorizes this. And again, I will list these or link to them in the show notes. But just listen to the, the types of symptoms that we're looking for. And with all of these, bear in mind that we're not saying if a person ever has this shit. What we're saying is, if they have it more than other people that are their peers, kids the same age or adults in the same job or whatever it might be. So it's all comparative. You got too little or too much attention to details. You have a hard time staying on or leaving a task. You have a hard time with what we in the field call executive function, which means difficulty planning, starting, and finishing one activity. You can do any of the middle bits. You know, you can plan it, but maybe not finish it. You can plan and start it, but then it's left on the floor. Or you can pick it up later and finish it off, but you can't do it all in one go. That's what executive functioning is, and it's a challenge for people with ADHD. You're disorganized, both bigger picture, you leave your shit all over the place, but also immediate. So you lose the little things in the moment. For instance, how many goddamn times do you lose the scissors and or the tape when you're wrapping presents 
for Christmas or birthdays or whatever the hell you wrap presents for. That's what I thought. That particular symptom makes me crazy. <sighs> if the person appears forgetful, they aren't necessarily if actually quizzed, but they sure seem it. If they appear easily distracted, if they make, and I'm going to make visual quotes until my arms hurt, careless mistakes, end quote. I don't like that phrase, but it's there. If they have minimal to no tolerance for tedium, for boring, time-consuming tasks, if they seem like they're just not listening, they just cannot sit still. They're fidgeting with something in their hands. They're shifting around in their chair. They physically get up and leave at a moment when it's really not appropriate to do so. They take risks, which seems stupid. This is the kid who's doing headstands on the couch where valuables are immediately behind it. And you're like, what were you thinking? And they're like, thinking? I didn't do that. That kind of deal. The people who run and leap into a swimming pool without even checking to see if there's water in the pool first. And yes, Emily, I'm looking at you. If they seem like they're always on the go, driven by a motor, they just can't seem to slow down all the time. If they talk, again with the air quotes, excessively, let me point out that I have a podcast, so yeah, talk excessively, got it, check. If they blurt out answers when it's clearly not the right time to do so. They have a hard time waiting their turn for things in a way that does not seem bullying or manipulative, but they just don't see the line. They interrupt or intrude on conversations, sometimes over and over and over again. They seem impatient and they show it like, <sighs> they don't seem to have emotional control or maybe to, to be more accurate, control over expression of emotion. There's just no poker face involved. So uh, some or all of that shit's got to show up. The stuff I listed in the first half of the list, that's more for inattentive presentation. The second half of the list is more hyperactive. So as you, if you listened through, it starts with more stuff we talk about when you can be sitting down. And by the end, it's a like a physically observable, Jesus Christ, you're a pain in the ass kind of presentation. In order to qualify, yay, you win for this diagnosis. It's got to appear before you're 12 years old. Used to be younger. But now they're saying appears before 12, lasts for more than six months. And it has to interfere, have a negative impact on at least two spheres of life. Did you know that you have more than two spheres in your life? Like, I didn't know that before. So... It's not just like work and home, work and home, life, work-life balance, no, no, no. social life, uh, school slash work, sometimes both, if you're in both, and your home life, 
and sometimes they also count like long term or long distance rather relationships versus upfront relationship you know whatever there's there's different spheres in your life and this has to be a problem in more than one because if it's a problem in just one then chances are there's a problem with anxiety around that or with something about that environment that you're not coping as well as you'd like with that place okay again my take I fucking hate when we do this to people, especially children. Anxiety is one thing, but often we wait for people to become adults before we acknowledge that, hey, maybe your anxiety is a problem, which I don't like. But ADHD, we slap on little kids. So right from the name, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. We use words like problems, paying attention, we talk about whether they pay enough or too much attention. They're disorganized. They appear wrong. They make careless mistakes. Fuck you, George. They, you know, take unnecessary risks. Who decides what's necessary? They blurt out answers when it's not appropriate to. Who decides? All that shit. That emotional control is a positive thing instead of something society dictates to. Whatever. Okay. I'm not going there right now. But the moral is there's this whole negativity to it that I don't like in psychology in general. But I really don't like it when we do this to children. A bigger way of looking at it is that people with ADHD have challenges when it comes to controlling their focus. You have either a hard time focusing on details or you can't stop focusing on details. That you either can't tune in on the work that's in front of you because there's so much to look at around you or you can't stop tuning out the whole world around you because you got this thing in front of you that you think is really important. That you get things going and you don't need to finish it right now because there's other shit to do. That it's not careless mistakes, it's experimentation or it's making your own decision about what is important instead of letting the rest of the world decide that for you. It's talking more because you're excited because you're into it let's fucking celebrate when this happens to people instead of pushing them back down into their little box i'm not saying they should take over the classroom i'm not saying that it should become the emily show or whatever but i am saying that there are ways to cope with this that aren't so disciplinary if somebody doesn't have a poker face good I think we spend too much time apologizing when we cry, trying to hide when we're laughing, and then ultimately being afraid to tell somebody, I love you. You matter to me. And when people don't hear that, they start to believe that they're not loved and that they don't matter. And that's when shit gets dark and heavy. So... <laughs> this stuff makes me crazy. It makes oh, 
calming it down. But seriously, like, I don't understand who decided which of these are priorities. I'm thinking old white men, but who knows? The moral is, even if we accept that there is a reasonable, all right level of here's too much attention and here's not enough and you got to stay right in that range, then there are ways to help a kid fall into that range rather than telling them you're just bad and wrong. So I don't like that. Let's also realize that the way you get artists in this world whether they are recreating what they see or whether they are finding a way to see things the rest of us don't, whether they are putting forth a podcast or directing a symphony or telling jokes. Those people are artists. They are bringing things to you in ways that you didn't think of yourself. Fucking appreciate that, man. It's hard. I, I, I consider myself an artist, although I'm, I still struggle with that word because I'm like, I don't deserve that term. Yes, I fucking do. I have a child. I have four children who are artists. They just each have their own media. My oldest child is in the newspaper as an artist. And so I look at my other three like, damn, if I am going to let anybody ever tell them that they are not artists just because they cannot put pen to paper in the way that Emily can. We need artists in this world. It doesn't work on just logic. And if you think it does, you may want to see a therapist about that. Art matters. So I would argue that pretty much all artists find a way to see the world differently than, again, with the visual quotes, normal. And I think that ADHD has a lot of that, this ability to tune into things that I don't see in a way that I don't see it. And while I'm not saying, therefore, let's let it go untreated, I am saying there are ways to treat the challenging symptoms, but still celebrate the positive ones instead of just trying to tamp it all down. I think of ADHD as a coping mechanism in that, in this case, your brain is cycling faster than your body. It's going 90 miles an hour and your body's going maybe 50 and your body's just trying to catch up. And so maybe it's self-stimulating a little bit by moving or by running or by twitching in your seat or fidgeting or by trying to look around the room and find enough input to keep up with your brain. Those are all coping skills. It's the best you can do in the moment. You may still have problems, but let's celebrate the fact that these people are survivors. I qualify as a survivor now. I never had ADHD before. And then in 2016, I developed epilepsy out of the blue while I was sleeping. I had an EEG following that particularly bad day and learned that I now have, where there never was a problem before, a lesion, a scar in my brain in the exact area where executive functioning is believed to reside. And so suddenly I went from hyper-organized 
you know, worked at IBM, engineering school, juggled all manner of shit, was able to list off all of those specific diagnostic criteria, symptoms, in my head, no problem while I'm talking to a person to not being able to do that shit, to being easily derailed and losing things. And man, that one symptom of losing the scissors when I'm trying to wrap presents, I cannot even say. I can't. So the point is, it has taken me quite a while to wrap my brain around the idea that my brain's okay, that a lot of these things have brought to me positives. I'm honestly not sure that I ever would have started a podcast without developing this more creative, more excitable, impulsive aspect of myself. I think it was always there, but developing ADHD has created in me a sense of dude, yeah, let's do it. Come on. Don't think about the consequences. The fact that you won't make eye contact with your family for six months straight. Kidding, but only sort of. And now my case is unusual because it's a tricky diagnosis when I didn't have as many symptoms as I did before age 12. And a lot of people get diagnosed as adults and they either can't document things happening to them when they were kids or they don't remember or they say, no, that wasn't me. I was fine. So it's becoming more and more obvious that people either have experienced this their whole lives or through some form of head trauma, whether it be from the inside out, like in a seizure or from the outside in, like say football, that they develop ADHD as time goes on. And it's a challenge, but it's not the end of the world. And at the end of the day, I think of ADHD as my brain's spinning too fast, my body can't keep up. That is why stimulants work for ADHD. You're not trying to slow the brain down because without a sharp stick, I'm not sure how you're going to do that. But you're trying to speed the body up because bizarrely, you speed the body up, now it matches the brain and the person goes, oh, okay. I feel more in control. This is must be what normal feels like, right? I'm okay. Okay, okay. I'll get shit done now. We're cool. So let me go back. I want to talk about some of these symptoms that people experience both when they have anxiety and or when they have ADHD. You see raised levels of worry, either in specific situations or just a whole mess of situations, depending on where the person has had trouble before. They are aware that they are not in control and that this is not fully rational, but they can't seem to make it better. There is a restlessness, an edginess, an irritability. There's a fatigue after a while from trying to keep all these plates spinning. So the reason you get a diagnostician involved is because we have a hard time knowing, okay, how come? Where are those symptoms coming from? How do they fit in the bigger picture of this person's life? So what are we left with? I mean, the way I see it, anxiety is like a group of physical symptoms that is spinning too fast 
and the brain's trying to play catch up and tends to interpret those physical symptoms as catastrophes on its way and I'm going to die. ADHD is when the brain is spinning too fast all the time, paying attention to a thousand different things, and they're either going to hyper-focus or they're not going to focus on a goddamn thing for the next three weeks. And the body's going, whoa, let me try and catch up here. Do you see the challenges in treatment? This is why it's so important to get a diagnostician involved, because anxiety, the best treatment, is to slow down the body to the level that the brain is functioning at. This is why depressants are wonderful things when you're anxious. For ADHD, you got to speed up the body to bring it to the level of the brain because the brain's not good at behaving. The body responds better to medications than the brain does, specifically. Brain meds take a long time to work, and it's hard to know if you got the right one until a long time has happened, and then you got to start all over again. Body meds work quicker, and they're more obvious in their effects. So, anxiety trying to slow down the body. ADHD trying to speed up the body. Well, shit, what if you get it wrong? It makes it worse. If you give someone who only has anxiety ADHD meds, they're going to have a motherfucking bad day. If you give somebody with ADHD anxiety meds, they're probably going to end up with more anxiety, honestly, because now the body is even slower and the brain's still spinning at 90 miles an hour. So knowing the correct diagnosis is real important. Do you want to know a quick and dirty trick that I have used on my own? I don't recall being told this, so go ahead and call it the Kate method. But I'm sure somebody smarter than I am have tried it, documented it, and researched it and whatever the hell. But seriously, if you want to know whether someone tends toward anxiety or tends toward ADHD, ask them to write a to-do list. People with anxiety really like writing lists because it helps organize their thoughts. It takes all of these random spinning concerns and puts them down on paper. It contains them. It just sort of feels better. It feels like you're doing something. People with ADHD struggle with lists. It's hard to bother because it can be tedious. And then it can be really hard to know, like, when do I stop? How many items need to be on this to-do list before I've written enough? And pretty soon they're writing things like, step one, write a list. And then they just keep going. And they're writing things like, brush your teeth at the end of the night, when you just ask them to write a list of what do you need to do for the school day. You know, it's, it's that sense of like, I don't know when to stop. All of these details might matter, and I'm having a hard time focusing on them. So here you go. And they don't like it. Because it's not comfortable. It's not helping them manage any of these symptoms. If anything, it's making them worse. This doesn't work in all cases. It's certainly not a diagnostic criterion of any stretch of the imagination. But it's one way to think about the two. Another way to think about the two is that they are in direct opposition. And so if you are one of the lucky winners who has both shit. It is not easy. Because you basically, for all intents and purposes, have to pick one. Which one's worse? Which one do you want to treat? 
because you treat one and the other one is going to get worse. If you try and treat both, your body doesn't cope well and basically it doesn't work because you're making the other one worse. You're just effectively making all symptoms worse instead of making any symptoms better. Luckily, ADHD responds pretty well to behavioral changes. It's not overnight and it's not an easy process, but there are ways to speed up the body or to sort of trick the brain into paying more attention where you want to focus. So that's why a lot of people sort of outgrow it or it gets better in time. That's why there are people who don't need to be on ADHD medications for the rest of their life. They can start them, they can learn some of those techniques, and they can wean off them. So that's good news. And that's about all the good news I have because anxiety tends to be sort of a way of life and you want to learn how to cope with it rather than how to get rid of it. And there are other people with ADHD where this is your lot in life. So let's help you use those symptoms for the positive instead of wallowing under them. But they're going to be there and you're not in charge. Didn't you feel better before you knew that? goes out to Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast for doing all of the heavy lifting this week. In fact, it was perfect timing as if you can't tell, I'm a little bit under the weather. It's the hazards of working in the ER. I usually get some sort of cold around the change of seasons and sure enough, spring has sprung and so have my allergies. If you like what you heard from Kate, go ahead and listen to more of her episodes. The link to her podcast is in the show notes. You could always search for Ignorance Was Bliss on all of your favorite podcast listening apps out there. And definitely leave her a five-star review because she is fantastic. Her show is great. And I have had the honor and privilege of meeting her in person. And I am happy and proud and grateful and hashtag blessed to say that she is one of my friends as well. So on that note, have a great Monday out there. Have a fantastic week ahead. Practice random acts of kindness and believe in the good. And I'll see you next time.